0: Welcome to The Loop Podcast. I'm your host, Alice, and today I'm really excited to be chatting with Daryl, CMO of Agora Pulse. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the importance of B2B marketers being tied to a revenue target, allowing them a real seat at the revenue table and giving them authority and responsibility to make a real impact. So Daryl, could I get you to introduce yourself a bit about you, your history and um, also where you work?
1: Alice, thank you so much. Sure. Uh, so my name is Daryl Prale, folks. I am the Chief Marketing Officer at Agora Pulse. For those who do not know, Agora Pulse is a social media management platform. We would compete with vendors like Hootsuite and Sprout Social. So now you go. Now you know everything you need to know. A uh, little background on me: I have been a multi-time uh, head of sales, head of marketing, currently mentioned CMO. Most recently, I was the Chief Revenue Officer for five years of a sales engagement platform called VanillaSoft. I have raised a lot of money. I have bought. I have sold, and I have been fired. So that is uh, that is my my pedigree right there in a nutshell.
0: I love the honest intro. <laughs> Lots that we can dig into later, I'm sure. Um, I think it's it's really interesting actually having a CMO on who's also been sat in the sales and the CRO seat to give us that. Um, perspective. So, I guess coming from that background, how do you think um, that experience has impacted your understanding and belief system on how you run a marketing function?
1: Oh my. Um, okay. I don't know if anybody's ever actually asked that question. How does that impact how I run a marketing function? That's a great question. Okay, I can I can answer that. Okay. So, uh, I guess it's one of those things, right? How it impacts you is, is sometimes it's subtle. It's not necessarily intentional. So, let's let's look at sales. So. I'm a, I, I view myself as a marketer by trade. I want to set the tone there. And, uh, and so for example, when I left the CRO job to go back to being just a CMO, I had a good gig, they loved me, they paid me well, I didn't have to leave. Um, and that's because I love marketing, but it was interesting because, and this is contextual at the last gig, I was selling sales tech. So I was a sales leader. I own sales, I own marketing, selling sales tech to sales people. I was 24-7 sales. And then I go to the complete opposite, MarTech, all right? So my first day on the job, I was in San Diego, social media marketing world. This is a year ago. And I walked in and like every second person, uh, well, for example, silly things that are contextual. Uh, In the sales tech world, men outnumber women by a long shot. In the MarTech world, women outnumber men by a long shot age difference is obvious the way they treat and carry themselves is different in the sales world they tend to be much more bottom line driven transactional have you hit your quota if you have not hit your quota what do you doing? in your focus it's all about the bottom line numbers 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 in the marketing world we're not so number centric we talk about being number centric but we really like our vanity metrics we like our likes we like our follows we like our shares did you see that cool video hey check out this cool gorilla campaign so That sets the stage. How has it impacted me and how I approach marketing? Well, the biggest way to put it is a couple things: it's performance and it's numbers, and that is the best way to put it. And for many marketers, they're not used to that. So when I go to them and I'll say, "That's great, you've got this wonderful idea to do this, you know, cool, incredible social campaign that's going to get a lot of eyeballs. How much revenue will that tie back? Can you measure it? Can we attribute it? And and that." That has been overwhelmingly the, the biggest difference. Second, because sales reps are so numbers focused from a, um, an activity point of view. I got to do 50 calls a day. I got to have four conversations a day. If I have, you know, 10 conversations, I'll get uh, uh, three chances to pitch. I'll get one of those deals, so to speak. So it's getting marketers to think the same way. What's your activity? It's not enough just to have a plan. Are you hustling? If your activity is low, what are you doing to pick it up? So it's really bringing a sales mentality to the marketing world. The last way it's done, it's it's treating marketers as part of the revenue team. Right, So this has been the biggest game changer of all. It's like, listen, we're top of funnel, they're bottom of funnel, but we are on the same team. This is a simple little handoff. So we are part of revenue. If we're not driving revenue, it doesn't matter how popular we are, if we're the most, you know, cool kid on social, irrelevant. So it's about revenue. So it's bringing that mindset and that means exposing the whole team to to, to KPIs, like what's my, what's our customer acquisition cost? What's the lifetime value? What's the churn? How can we own that? How can we improve that? So in a nutshell, nice. that's how it's impacted it.
0: It's always seamlessly actually taken us on to the next question, um, which you started to colour, but it'd be good to go quite like in depth here, or as in depth as you as you kind of feel like comfortable going. But um I think you know, we're talking all about marketing being beholden to a revenue target, which I'm a massive proponent of. Um, but then that's obviously like the, that's the goal, the ultimate, the ultimate thing we're trying to achieve, but in order to get there, you sort of like alluded to some of these things in terms of, um, activity kind of numbers and, and, um, some of the key metrics that would be leading and lagging indicators for marketers to be focused on. What do you as a CMO, um, give to your team as like the core KPIs and metrics that they need to be tracking and reporting on? And. How do you go about ensuring that all parts of the marketing org get aligned to that revenue number? Like, have you got a way in which you kind of operationalize that within the organization?
1: So is, is fear a good answer? I'm just curious. <laughs> okay, so this is a big conversation. Yeah. And it's not an easy conversation. So the first part is, what are the, what are the KPIs I'm looking at? hmm Okay, there's uh, so maybe no into like
0: leading and lagging. That would probably yeah, be
1: yeah, good. yeah. I I totally get you. So it sounds stupid. I'm looking at what's our pipeline at. All right. So in other words, I I'm starting at do we have enough pipeline, based on simple funnel math of how much in our pipeline, how much is going to convert typically based on historicals uh, to hit our numbers. If we're not, if we're lagging behind that, that's that's your warning sign. How can we as marketers? Affect that because that's our job, right? So, and this is one of the conversations I, I'm going to go off tangent for a second. Alice, I'm crazy. You have to control me. Um, <laughs> is getting alignment between sales and marketing because often sales will say we're behind, therefore, it's because marketing's not giving us enough leads. And that leads to a whole other conversation, which I won't go into just yet, which is about having an alignment, having an understanding of what's your role sales for prospecting versus my role for you know bringing you inbound leads for you to close there's got to be a 50 50 or 75 25 or some kind of split and understanding because in the, the day if i see that we are lagging on revenue then i have to say well what percentage of that based in that understanding do i own mm-hmm. right and then i have to look at how much time is left in the quarter uh typically because there's a sales cycle so if, if we're in one month and it's a 30 day sales cycle okay then i've got time but if we're at you know Two and a half months into a three-month quarter, it's a 30-day sales cycle. There's nothing I can do. So then I move on to the next quarter. Mm. So those are the baseline points. Once we understand that we have an issue, then it's like, what channels are performing, right? So how can we get the immediate, you know, results to feed the beast? So for us, we're always looking at how are we performing on our on our. MQL goals. And this is always funny, right? Because there's always this conversation about marketing is more than MQLs. Absolutely, it is. We'll have that conversation in a moment. Mm-hmm. But we are obligated to bring in you know, a percentage of MQLs to feed the beast. So I'm always looking at what is the return I'm getting, what are the results I'm getting by each individual channel, and how is that performing to historical norms? So if I'm up or down, if I'm up, life is good. If I'm down, then we need to do some investigation or some some changes in our messaging or in our targeting, et cetera. So I'm always looking at the team to say, how are we, comp- how are we performing versus four weeks ago versus last quarter versus last year? That's always over and over again, a month, a quarter, a year, how are we performing so we have context? Um, So that's pipeline, Mm -hmm. historicals, and then what, how are we converting, right? So it's not enough to bring in MQLs. It's enough to know, are they converting into actual deals? And then there's, because that tells you something, right? So in other words, it's telling me, hey, we're having great success on our webinars, Killer success, 500 people, thousand people per webinar, but they're just not converting. So is this where we want to keep on going? Maybe they were converting last year, but they're not converting this year. The market's changed. So there's that consideration. So the performance by channel. Um, and then finally, the last thing we are always looking at is not just conversions. We're looking at churn and deal size. So in other words, using the webinar example, are those webinars uh, driving what? I'm, I'll use... Example numbers, $500 a month, MRR, are they drinking in $600 a month? Is that ramping up or is that ramping down? And then are those deals churning? If they're churning, why are they churning? Is it a list function? Is it a messaging function? Are we appealing to the wrong uh, segments in in a persona? Do we need to look at expanding or refining our ICP? So in a nutshell, which I just gave you a whole bunch of stuff, (laughs) sounds like I'm looking at everything. I'm not, I'm looking back, I'm looking forward and I'm looking at how does it hit the bottom line? So. That's what we'll look at from a like
0: KPIs. Really, I mean, that's really interesting. And then, but just, I think what would also be great to hear your perspective on is how that translates into, for the team. So does each team or department within the org, um, I'm talking about the marketing org, do they own a specific pipeline number? Do they own a specific MQL number? Like how does that kind of, yeah, wash out within the org?
1: Sure. So that comes down to an organizational structure. So for example, many organizations use OKRs. Mm-hmm. Ourselves, we use big rocks here at Agorapult. So big rocks are part of the EOS or Enterprise Operating System. And that all ties back to what are the big rocks for the company, usually on an annual and a quarterly basis, right? So and one of those big rocks is always revenue. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at how do we support the revenue number? Are we attaining it? What's our contribution? It's as simple as that. And it's, it's, it filters down from the top.
0: And then you were talking a bit about um, how teams need to, well, marketers are looking at their own activity, um, especially when stuff looks like sort of it's in the red. How do you operationalize, like, I guess, measuring output from like different parts of the marketing org or do you have like a, do you use a, a system such as Asana or something like that? Or yeah, is there a cool way that you've sort of come across a, that to measure this?
1: Output. Oh, goodness. Okay. Marketers hate Output. Don't you know that, Alice? They don't want you to be <laughs> accountable. Um, it's, kinda, it's like holding sales reps accountable for making phone calls. They hate that too. All right. So, yeah. So we do use Asana and I'll talk a little bit about that. I've used multiple project management tools. is good. You know, you could use another one. You don't have to necessarily use that. Um, this is how we work. And this is so therefore Output works backwards from this big framework. We're always planning two quarters in advance. So this quarter and next quarter, we have a rolling, you know, two quarter calendar Anything beyond that is pie in the sky. You know, I could tell you what I'm doing three quarters from now, but likelihood it'll change because suddenly, you know, the economy tanks. So it's always rolling two quarters. Every quarter has a theme. So what we try to do is scale. So we're a global company. We have offices in the, in the U S we have office in, in, in France. Uh, we, we have over 40 countries that our employees span. Uh, my team is almost 40 marketers alone across, I don't know how many time zones. So, and it's almost all work from home. So managing that is very challenging. Mm-hmm. So by having a standard routine, life is grand. How we do that is by having the two quarters, we know that every single month has got a theme. For example, right now the theme is social media ROI. We just did a relaunch of our social media ROI capabilities. We had a massive summit. We had the press release, we had uh, the whole. We had multiple webinars. The whole month is all social media, ROI, eBooks, case studies, everything social media, ROI related. In a month, we're gonna have a standard canned number of activities. So for example, for us, we always every single month in every single region mm-hmm. have two webinars, one eBook, four live streams, four product feature demos uh, that we talk about just, you know, hey, do you ever have this problem on your tool? Here's how you can do it better. And, and that's a minimum. That's a minimum. Plus we have activity numbers against social media. All of that goes into Asana. Now to make Asana scale, we have, we've built templates, standard, what I call my SOPs, or standard operating procedures. So a webinar, an ebook, all have a standard, you know, twenty twenty five items on a checklist. So the minute we schedule it, and we're scheduled two quarters in advance, we have that entirely managed by Asana. So how do we manage this, the marketing team's activity? By using Asana. The trick to that though, where I've had success here, where I've not had the same level of success enforcing that in, in companies past is having dedicated project managers. So I have two dedicated project managers here, but even if we just have one, it makes a hell of a difference. The challenge we had with that was when the project managers would stick their nose into people's business by saying, you're late. They would get all up in arms and they would get upset and how dare you, and then we had acrimony. So now the project managers, they, they serve basically two functions. They make sure everything runs on time. They give people lots of warnings, even though the system's doing it for them. Uh, they, make, they make sure everything that's new that's started, maybe it's something ad hoc. Hey, let's do a surprise birthday party for our oldest client. I'm making that up. Uh, yeah. That's a one-off. So let's go make sure that we've got a system again following standard stuff. It's on Asana. So they make sure that we follow it. They police the usage. But when somebody needs to be disciplined, they come to me. And they say, Daryl, you're the bad guy because you're the CMO. So then I go down and I say, what's the problem? What's the issue? The other thing that the, the project manager acts as, and this is brilliant, folks. I cannot endorse this enough. They act as my barometer because me and my role as CMO, I can't be everywhere all the time, nonstop. I just can't be. I can't be in the, the, in the minute details and conversations of what's going on. But the project managers tend to be, that's their function. So they'll report back to me There's frustration going on here. We're falling behind over there. People are unclear over here. So they kind of become a back channel for me uh, on top of what I do to kind of go back and say, hey, I hear there's some problems, folks. What's the issue? So last thing, when it comes to activity, my job, I tell my team over and over again, I said, I don't market anything. I, I, am It's just not my job. My job is to make sure you market. So my job is to get rid of all the roadblock, all the obstacles, all the politics, all the bureaucracy. So escalate to me, which is what the project manager is great for doing. And I'll get rid of all the people who are causing you grief in the other departments. Cool. How do you?
0: Amazing. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think the project manager piece, I find especially interesting because we are massive Asana users. And I think that's helped us no doubt in scaling our output and getting people oh, yeah. more visibility and everything. Um, but I, I, it sometimes obviously comes down to make people, we have to police it like ourselves and that's yeah. every team and every manager. And there isn't this sort of project management role kind of, I guess, overseeing and applying rules across the board. So I could definitely see the value in that. Um, and I'm already thinking about it. I am like, that's very. Yeah.
1: Well, the, the one thing I will jump in here, just for those who are listening to Alice and I talk about Asana um, or any kind of project management tool, the biggest thing for us here was culture change. So when I got here, we were using Asana, but it was like, not really well used and Mm -hmm. it was not, and there was no, there's no standard operating procedures, no, you know, no repeatable framework and the project managers were despised. So it's taken a year. It's taken a year of, of me holding people massively accountable. Me explaining to the rest, the rest of the executive, I'll have the executive, I'll I'll have somebody in say product come to me and say, we want to use the designers to build this. And i say, great, fill out a form. And they'll say, can, can we just do it? This form thing is, it's such a pain in the ass. And I'm like, guys, do you have forms for your product roadmap? Do you have a roadmap? Well, yeah. You collect all the data to prioritize what's happening. Well, yeah. Okay. We're the same way. So they want to avoid the process. So it's taken a year of culture change. To get them to understand you can't avoid the process. Now, what's amazing is I've had so many people come and pitch and moan, especially new employees, because they'll say, oh my gosh, there's so much noise. I never had this much noise before at my last job. And I said, it's just a change in your work style. So I said, in the morning, in the afternoon, just for a little bit, go check your Asana inbox. That's what I got to do. And, and once they get that, then they're like, oh my gosh, I love this. But it takes Time. It's a culture change, and you have to really stick it, stick it hard, and just be relentless in uh, championing it.
0: I think that's important. There's no, you can't. There's no halfway adoption on this. It has to be fully, fully adopted. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, it doesn't work for sure. Um. Okay. Well, we've slightly got off piece, but I still think really, really interesting. But bringing us back to this whole idea of marketing being aligned to revenue. Um. I guess, like, what on the flip side of this, what have you seen when you've been in seat? or just observed in other organizations that have been the issues with marketers who don't own a revenue target? What, like what, I guess let's let's talk about the reasons why that could be really, really hurtful for them.
1: How much time do you got? (laughs) Um, You know, we did a survey and this will answer a question. We did a survey, for example, of Thousands of social media managers because, hey, we're a social media management company. And one of the comments we heard, and this is not limited to social media managers, but the survey backed it up, was that many of them felt like they weren't valued. They felt like they weren't strategic to the company and they weren't uh, incorporated or included or consulted as part of the company plans. Okay, when you're not tied to revenue, that's what happens. You're just viewed as an expense. You're viewed as a branding exercise for lack of any other Because uh, remember, mm-hmm. non marketers are not marketers. So, therefore, anything marketers do, that's just branding. That's, all every, that's their global umbrella term for everything that marketers do. And if they're cutting back on dollars mm-hmm. or our budgets or they're looking at layoffs, what gets hit first is the branding. So, uh, the second thing that gets cut back is things that do not drive revenue. So if that's what you are, if you're a marketer who has not been able to convey the impact you've had and make a demonstrable case that you have driven this much revenue, then you will be first one let go, first one laid off, you'll have your budget taken away. And when marketers see that, and they understand, oh, wait a minute, because I can tie myself to that, then they're viewed as strategic, they're consulted, and they're they're included in the actual plans for what we're doing to you know, go to market and achieve our goals. And that drives employee satisfaction. And that actually results in them having a longer tenure. It also results in a higher revenue per employee. And life is good. So it's kind of like, you know, bad or good. And it's all down to revenue because at the end of the day, that's the truth teller.
0: And interest, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on this. But why do you think some people shy away from owning that revenue number? Because I completely agree, like all of those benefits that you've just listed, I've seen myself by actually volunteering to own a revenue number. And I find it really interesting that I know sometimes it's blamed upon the organisation and just the way that things have always been done. But I also think some of the reason why marketers don't, is because there is a sense of fear.
1: You, need, I always say it's a sense of being held accountable. It's a fear of being held accountable, right? If if I'm tied to a number and my numbers aren't good, my imposter syndrome is going to be manifested into reality, and you're going to realize that I suck. So, we, we the, the reality is you can never get better if you don't measure yourself, right? Just doing it based on uh, subjective feedback is never good, especially marketers are notorious for getting subjective feedback from their own trusted circle of peers. So we become an echo chamber of attaboys, uh, whereas sales numbers are the true arbiter of good or bad. So I think it's just, it's, oh, I see it over and over again. They're afraid of being held accountable.
0: Yeah, which is, it's. It, and I think it's so important to drive home this fact that actually by being held accountable, you're less likely to be susceptible to being let go or, you know, like having this high churn in within your role, because you actually have solid numbers that matter to the organization, the board, the exec team to back up what you're doing. Obviously, if you're doing it well, I mean, there's obviously the flip well, side, if it's not going well.
1: I'll go one step further to your point, all right? And I see this over and over again. Let's, let's say, let's just say round numbers again. Your job is to bring in $1,000 this month, nice, simple number. And you know what? You're held, you're accountable, you're measured, and you only brought in 800 here's what happens. Nine times out of 10, they'll say, ah, that sucks, we didn't get to 1,000. But you did 800, so that's pretty good. We're close, so let's improve. In other words, what I'm saying is, they don't go, oh, only 800, that's it, you're banished, you're fired, never again. So in the absence of any numbers, they assume that you're, you're just an expense. But in the presence of some numbers, even if they're not the target numbers, they at least see the impact you're having and they're willing to work with you.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, on a similar sort of um, note, I think this is always an interesting one to ask fellow CMOs because it's different for everyone, But and I think also always a challenge, but how do you go about reporting upwards? What do you find best in terms of like a cadence and a structure for that? And do you change the way in which you do it depending on who you're communicating with within that exec team?
1: <laughs> reporting upwards, I'm sorry. Did you see Alice was laughing too when I started giggling because we can relate to this. So (laughs) one of the things I get a lot of people coming up to me, I'm sure you're the same way, who are saying, I want to be you. You know, how how, how did you become a CMO, yada, yada, yada. And what I'll teach them, I'll say to them is I'll say a couple of things, but I'm going to circle back to what Alice talks about. So I'll say, listen, all that stuff you learned in marketing to get to the, to be, to be considered to be a CMO. And they're like, yeah, once you become a CMO, forget it. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, because when you're a CMO, yes, you need to understand marketing. Yes. Cause you're the one putting the strategy together, but you've got a team doing, you know, they're, they're in the trenches. What you have to become is you have to become the agent uh, of change, you have to be the culture ambassador, and you need to be the chief advocate and communicator. And communicating means communicate up, communicate down, communicate across. So if you, these are the skills you need to learn now if you ever want to be a CMO, which, by the way, they never teach you. So on the communicate up thing, this is what I find works best all the time. I meet with my CEO at least once a week. And, and, and it is a very transparent conversation. Here's what's working. Here's what's not. Here's where I am personally struggling. Here's where I need your advice. That, you know, in that honesty and that transparency comes trust from them because they feel like you understand what's going on. They, you see it. You may, not feel, they may, you may not feel you're equipped, but now the CEO can help you uh, because now they, they know how to help you. The second thing I do is I communicate nonstop on Slack or email, if that's what your your chosen method is. So I am constantly giving my my CEO FYIs, FYI, FYI, FYI. Um, so there's no surprises. And here's why you communicate, folks. If you if you haven't, because this may seem again, if you're afraid of being held accountable or having responsible, you still many people avoid that communication. Yeah. You know, you you basically a turtle, put your head in the sand, hope nobody notices. In fact, it's the opposite. This is why you want to do this. When you communicate up and communicate often, what happens is you give your CEO or the board members a chance to become your advocates. They will say, okay, I hear you. That's a good idea. Have you thought about trying this or this or this? Great idea. I, don't, I won't do this or this, but I will do that. I'm going to get back to you. So that eventually, if things don't work out, you actually... Live to tell your story another day because those people are have bought into your situation, have bought into your problem. They've given you help. You've applied some of their lessons, maybe without success or maybe with success, and they feel like you're their person. So the beauty of communicating up is you actually generate loyalty, you generate visibility, you generate respect. And there's no surprises. So, when somebody from another team says, Oh, marketing dropped the ball over here, which by the way happens on a fairly regular basis, and we do drop the ball sometimes, um, you, you're not chastised. You're not viewed negatively. You're viewed as a team player. How can we fix this? So, communicate often, communicate up, communicate across. Um, that's your job. That's your job as a marketing leader. You are the primary communicator up and down. So, it's not just communicating up, by the way. And we talked about revenue numbers earlier. That's communicating down. So, that means we just got out of, a, of an executive team meeting, a leadership team meeting. These are the numbers. They're not looking as good as they should have looked. Here's what it means to us. We have to scale back on our numbers. We have to do more, whatever. Visibility up and down the chain changes everything, gets rid of, because what happens when you don't do this is people fill in the blanks themselves, and that's where rumors and gossip and it you know gets going, and it just impacts the team performance.
0: I'll yeah. shut up. <laughs> no that's really good also um just on that topic I guess does the way you communicate I always talk about like you need to speak multiple languages as a CMO and I'm not a linguist but um so I mean when I speak to the CFO it's quite different to how I would speak to my VP sales and it's quite different to how I speak to the CEO because I just know they care about different things is that is, would you say that's the same for you and if so like yeah how do you go about kind of altering that?
1: I love that you said, because they care about different things. That's exactly what it is. So this, you do speak different languages. You speak about what they care about, what their domain expertise is, and you speak in their vocabulary, right? So I will talk about CAC and ROI and LTV with my CFO, but I may not talk about that with my head of customer support as an example. So absolutely, you need to talk their language because then they feel like you understand them. And you're trying to support them. I think
0: that's so important as marketers as well, because we have our own language, let's be honest. We all love an acronym. So actually (laughs) stripping it back and being like, no, I'm going to talk in the language that they speak. What they care about is kind of how you get through. Amazing. Cool. Um, Now this one I'm really interested to ask you as someone who has been a CRO and also a head of sales, um, what do you see as like the perfect reporting structure for ultimate sales and marketing alignment? If you had like, you know, the dream state, what would that look like for
1: you? The, the, what would the dream state org chart look like? Yeah, uh, I guess when I'm talking yeah. sales
0: and marketing as two either two separate orgs, a revenue org, who reports to who, like how like for maximized sales and, and marketing alignment, dream state, what would that look like?
1: Okay. So I'm gonna give you an either or an A or a B. These are my two Dream States, and there's a reason why I have two options. If the CEO truly understands sales and marketing, if they understand it, Mm -hmm. then I am totally cool with a CMO and a VP of sales or chief sales officer reporting up to a CEO. Totally cool. All right most, uh, many CEOs don't. They were technologists who had a great idea and the company grew and they themselves never really did sales or marketing or they think they understand sales or they think they understand marketing when the reality is they've never made a cold call in their life. I said that respectfully, but not really. Um, so if they understand it, then that's cool. If they don't, my dream state is, this, is what I had my last gig where I was the CRO. I own sales, I own marketing. Because then I had... I had the ability to understand everything and I could teach the two teams how to be aligned. I could act as that universal translator from marketing speak to sales speak. I could create that common shared uh KPIs and reporting structure. So
0: But do you there think you there's go. a prerequisite on what that CRO's background is, I guess? So they shouldn't no, super heavy no. sales or
1: I I, there is As long as they understand both disciplines, and this is the problem, many CROs are not CROs. They're VP of sales, who the company said, we have no more money to give you. So guess what? We're going to give you this cool title instead called CRO, but you still just own sales. Or they'll say, we're going to give you marketing, but why did they give you marketing? Because if that CRO is sales only, that's just the CEO probably is... Sales only or technology and doesn't understand marketing. So in the ideal world, the CRO has got some experience in sales and or marketing. It's
0: mm-hmm. as simple
1: as that. They do not need to be a rock star on both. And I've had re- many a recruiter call me in fairness, and they would say somebody like myself who's done both roles is a bit of a unicorn, right? So it's not an easy role to find, but it does require somebody. If, if for example, if I have a CRO and the, by their own admission, they've done some marketing, but not a lot then I would want that CRO to come to me as the head of marketing and say, teach me, educate me, tell me what I don't know so I can be a better CRO. Again, that's the ideal culture where they recognize their own limitations. And, and, that, and that could be a CEO doing the exact same thing. Teach me, tell me, I don't know. Um but in the end, the reason I, I will go with a CEO who knows both or a CRO is because you ultimately need an arbiter. You always need someone to be the tiebreaker who makes an informed, balanced decision. If you do not have that, it will air either all in marketing or all in sales. And what was interesting is I've seen this over and over again, even when they made me CRO, the reason they have offered me, I was seeing them all the time, I had off the job as CRO, even though I'd been a VP of sales numerous times before. They'd still hesitate it because, you know, I'm a marketer. That was in their mind, a marketer running sales. I don't know. And their outside consultant came in and said, Daryl will chew up any VP of sales we bring in because he's a strong personality. So why don't we just give him that authority? So it's, it's recognizing that they have the personality to drive results, but they understand also all of the disciplines in some manner. It, it really is about having the right balance. It's not just about the skills, it's also about the leadership acumen.
0: Cool. That was wow, brilliant. that sounded
1: obnoxious. No, that
0: was, yeah, super interesting. Thank you. Um, and actually, I've often asked, like, we, we've always had this debate at Cognizant, and um very fortunate that our CEO does really understand marketing. And he has always said he'll always have marketing report into him because he wants to have. He wants to hear both sides. He wants to hear the sales yeah. side. He wants to hear the market side. He wants to be the arbiter of it all. So, um, and I think that works really well for us, and we're super aligned as a result of it. Yeah,
1: and it's the same at Agorapult. You know, so you yeah, imagine me going from zero, where I had all that responsibility for revenue, going about to be CMO. When I was in discussions for the job, to your point, I did massive due diligence. Does you know if I take this job? Does this individual truly know what I do? and what was interesting. And if they don't, do they recognize they don't? That's an equal question to be asked. In other, and so for me, it was all, for me taking the job, it was like, tell me what your objectives are before I take the job. Tell me how I'm going to be held accountable and tell me how much freedom I have, right? Because if you're, if you're telling me, well, we're hiring you because we don't really do well at marketing. That's why we're going to hire you. But by the way, my work style is to micromanage and question everything you do. That's a recipe for failure. In other words, you got you, you hired me for, to achieve outcomes uh, and I will educate you And co- back to your conversation around communication. I will communicate constantly so there's no surprises and you have input. So it really, the interview folks, the interview, the most important step to any kind of job uh, satisfaction.
0: Amazing. And then our final question, which we ask everyone, is what is one thing you would tell marketers today to start doing and one thing you would tell them to stop doing?
1: All right, start. I'm gonna give you two, not just one. Kind of related. One is understand the financial KPIs that your investors, that your CFO, that your leadership team, that your board members care about. Understand them and how you impact them. What do they mean? How can you influence that so that you can speak CFO speak as we talked about earlier? On a related, note, When it comes to budget, start having conversations that a percentage of your budget needs to go to branding, which is much more difficult to measure a KP, an ROI on versus demand gen, all right? So in my case, we have a 50-50 split. 50% of my, my my budget is branding. They will not hold me accountable to actual revenue impact. 50% is demand gen, I need to impact the revenue. So start doing that. Uh, stop, stop avoiding being held accountable. The beauty of accountability, the beauty of being held to a number uh, is that it actually keeps you incredibly focused. It keeps you focused, it keeps your team focused, and it, it reminds you of what, why you're getting up every single day and how you measure success. If you av- keep avoiding that, cause you're afraid you have imposter syndrome, you will never have the career growth and the professional growth that you so desperately seek and desire.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been really, really fun to and I really appreciate your time on it. And, um, yeah, it's been a great.